This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Space, the final frontier, at least for fashion technology. Every once in a while, it's great to look back on conversations we've had over the years and revisit particularly memorable ones that stand the test of time. There are often great points of insight that can be considered through a new lens. One of these conversations reminds us how solving a seemingly impossible problem can be achieved by thinking about it in a brand new way. It's about what it took to conceive and create a beacon of fashion technology, spacesuits. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Fashion Is Your Business. This one recorded on location in San Francisco, California, at the Wear Conference. And um, I promise you, we have the most interesting guest today. His name is Nicholas DeMancho. He's the director of the Berkeley Center for New Media, and he's a professor of architecture and design at UC Berkeley. And to be perfectly honest with you, that has very little to do with why we have him on the show today. It's because he is the author of an incredible book called Spacesuit, Fashioning Apollo, which happens to be the story of why the Apollo spacesuit was soft and not hard and why it was made by the same company who made bras and girdles. And we are going to find out how that possibly could be linked together when we start the show right now. My name is Nicholas Demancha. I teach architecture and design at UC Berkeley, and I wrote a book, Spacesuit Fashioning Apollo. And what I love about fashion tech is it is the collision of two really different ways of thinking about the world, uh, both of which are fundamental to who we are now. Listening to Fashion Is Your Business, powered by Sennheiser and recorded on location with Pavan Ball, Rob Sanchez, and Mark Rako. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Rako. To my left, Mr. Rob Sanchez. Hey, y'all. And directly across from me, Mr. Pavan Ball. Hey, you. Pavan. And uh, with us is our guest, and we're proud to have him here, Mr. Nicholas DeMancho, who, again, is the director of the Berkeley Center for New Media and a professor of architecture and design at UC Berkeley, as well as the author of Spacesuit Fashioning Apollo. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Delighted to be here. Yeah, we're delighted to have you. So let's start. Well, before we start, a quick question. Yeah. Now that Pavan is a cyborg, do we yes. need to refer to him differently on the show? No. So our robotic friend, Pavan... Okay. As opposed to Mr. Now? Yeah, exactly. I lost my Mr. title? No, you're Not Mr. You Roboto. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Roboto Puffin. All right, Excellent. so uh, um, if you don't know what that's about, you need to go back and listen. Uh, okay, uh, welcome, Nicholas, to the show. Let's start out as we usually do on the show, and, and we'll do it now going forward. And that is, uh, give us a kind of Reader's Digest thumbnail sketch of who you are and uh, why, what this book is all about, Spacesuit Fashioning Apollo, and frankly, why you're the person who wrote it. Well, uh, 
so I guess the, the there's two versions of the of the story of who I am and the origin of the book. Uh, the truest Real one, one and the not- um, is that, of course, like many children, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was uh, mm-hmm. uh, growing up, and I was always fascinated by space. And I found myself in graduate school in architecture being asked to think about in a seminar about domestic space, and which is like architects thinking about bathrooms and um uh interiors and uh, uh i tried to think of the craziest domestic space i possibly could which was the interior of a spacesuit and to figure out who had written what about spacesuits and what the history was and i found um uh, surprisingly little written about it although there's lots of stuff written generally about uh uh, the Apollo program in space exploration, and then I started um, pulling the thread of the of this story about how the Apollo spacesuit was made by uh, industrial division of the same company that made Playtex bra and girdles, and the story of why and how that was the case. Uh, took up uh, almost 10 years of my life to, to really figure out and go back and interview everybody involved and it continued to it be such an amazing... It wasn't a simple answer of product expansion? <laughs> it was a simple answer. It was a simple answer that the... Um, uh, We're going into new markets, 42. guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of, you know, in a way, sort of, because the, the, uh, the, the Playtex company was the brainchild of this crazy inventor named Abram Spinell who lived in what is now the New Jersey governor's mansion. And Mm. he uh, uh, had a very successful business just before the Second World War, selling uh, the very first Playtex girdles um, uh, through mail order. Playtex was originally made uh, uh, rubber covers for uh, children's diapers. That's why it was Playtex. Uh, but mm. then um, Abram Spinell figured out how to not not to have rubber split, which allowed you under tension, which allowed you to make girdles, which were cheaper and and better and more comparatively, like quote unquote, more comfortable than the sort of fabric uh, tight fabric girdles mm-hmm. at the time. And he sold them successfully through um, uh, ads in the New York Times and stuff. But then during the Second World War, the supply of rubber um, uh, gave out because rubber mm-hmm. was a defense commodity and the company almost went under. So he said he would always keep a, a, a division that was going after government contracts uh, after that in order to be able to survive uh, the Cold War. But he hired as his uh, director of that government contracts division um, the only scientist he knew who who was his TV repairman in mm-hmm. um, Rochester, New York, a guy named um, Len Shepard, who admittedly was an MIT dropout, but whose only um, uh, engineering background was uh, self-taught. Wow. A lot, of correl- a lot of relationships going back to Rochester, New York today, right? I know. I, that's like that's the third, third time it's come up today, one. which okay. is where I'm yeah, from. Yeah. He's so. from, yeah, Mark is from Rochester. Crazy. What was the moment and why that you'd said, I need to do this for the next 10 years? Uh, well, of course, well, if, you, if, then, if but... you thought of it that way, you yes. never would do it. So, so, so let me, let me <laughs> you change You started with 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> why was this so important that you spend 10 years of your life? Uh, that's a big deal to devote yeah. 10 years of your life, at least in part, to one project that you saw through to the end. Uh, why did this matter to you? That's a really good question. I th- the best answer is that um, maybe I thought it was a not only a really cool story and an amazing story, but a really important story 
because as is evidence here today, even at a conference like this, um, our world is in an accelerating rate of technological change. And yet technology itself, just like fashion, is a cultural artifact. It contains within it all kinds of assumptions about how the world works and what it's made. And increasingly, as technology takes on uh, uh, a much more central role in the way our cities are designed, the way our buildings are made, the way our environments are thought about, um, I thought the spacesuit was a really important story because it showed how at the very kind of white-hot intersection of human bodies and technology in the mid-century crucible of the space race, there was this, uh, on the one hand, this epic fail on the part of the military-industrial uh, companies trying to make, uh, you know, for, for Playtex to get the contract for the Apollo spacesuit, most of the book is about the fact that for all these other approaches had to fail that were more rooted in the traditional technological approaches at the time. Nobody woke up in the morning and said, oh, it'll be really great for our heroic PR of the Apollo space program if we have <laughs> women taken from bra assembly lines, you know, making the, the costumes for the astronauts on the surface of the moon. What it represented was a failure of, of um, all the methods of technology that were help making the rest of the space race work to design for human bodies. But, you know, 50 years later, uh, uh, technology still has all kinds of assumptions in it about yeah. how it works. And that's very different from the way bodies work. It's very different from the way cities work. And we can learn a lot about that intersection at, at the kind of origin point in the middle yeah. of the last century. I think you just defined the issue that we find in fashion tech, which is that the engineering mindset doesn't match the design mindset mm -hmm. and the understanding of the human body isn't complete in either. That is at its core what the book is mm -hmm. about. But the book is about a, a kind of almost a sort of historical understanding of why that's the case. Where does the technological mindset come from? So I go back in the book to the very origins of the um, of the uh, of the of technology in the Cold War and how systems engineering was developed by the Army and Air Force to uh, build ICBMs and other weapons of the Cold War and then those when we suddenly started putting people on top of rockets instead of nuclear warheads all those methods of thinking came came with the uh, came with the package but then um, uh, they tried to apply them to people. <laughs> like to nuclear warheads. In fact, I don't know if you saw my presentation in there, but we were joking about you being a cyborg. But the word cyborg was actually invented originally to describe the way, uh, the first way in which the Air Force thought would ma that men would walk on the moon. Mm -hmm. They thought yep. we would like treat the human body like a missile and swap out all the systems that didn't work very well on the on the surface of the moon so give you a nuclear powered heart and metallic skin and all of these things mm -hmm. and so that was the a proposal in 1957 to the air force that coined the word cyborg which now has become a kind of word that we used to describe this integration of technology and people and they spent millions of dollars on contracts to try and study how this would be possible but i thought it's really Who important the that, the, the, that it's really mm. essential to understand that the way that we actually made it to the moon wasn't by treating the body as a piece of technology but actually hiring uh, uh people like uh Roberta Pilkington, who was one of the amazing seamstresses I spoke to, who had a really visceral understanding of what the body really was and how to sew to sew it and accommodate it and fashion a kind of solution that would allow the human body to operate in this incredibly hostile environment. So what ultimately was the technology that was so cutting edge and the design that made it possible for Playtex to go ahead and secure that contract and produce these suits? 
Well, it wasn't so much a, a cutting edge here. You know, the book is called Fashioning Apollo. And I like the word fashioning because it has a couple of different meanings. It means, of course, something that's of the moment and, and very um, uh, uh, trendy and, and, and au courant. And then it also means making something out of something else, which is very much the story of fashion. Like a, uh, a necktie is made out of an Elizabethan bow, is made out of a kind of practical ornament, is made out of uh, uh, something else. And that's... Uh, in the case of the spacesuit, the um, uh, the guy I was telling you about, uh, Len Shepard, the TV repairman, he was um, uh, looking at the problem of actually doing work in a in a pressure suit, which was um, pressure suits had only previously been used as kind of emergency backups in aircraft. So they were very immobile because um, when you inflate something like a pressure suit, it wants to be round and hard like a basketball. It doesn't want to let you move in it doesn't mm-hmm. want to um, accommodate itself to the body and he basically took all the technologies of bras and girdles which is the the rubber that they were dipping into layers and the the bra straps which were made of nylon webbing and the the bra cups which were made of a, of a kind of trico fabric a, a porous fabric and he put those together in a in a new way uh, where that look looking kind of like a a worm with segments whereby the the nylon trico was embedded within the 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 sort of rings or donuts of that um, convolute it was called to help it keep its shape and not not blow up as the suit was inflated and then the webbing was in the valleys of that of of that convolute that helped it stay in shape and what that allowed is a is a joint to a suit which let you move it but didn't increase or decrease in volume as it was moved which meant mm-hmm. that in the pressure in the pressurized mm-hmm. assembly of the spacesuit you could actually move your elbows and knees yeah. without um, you're not pinching you're, you're not you're not changing you're the not, volume yeah. so uh, previously like in the Gemini spacesuits, you were actually changing the volume of the suit as you were moving. So you had to exert an enormous amount of effort to actually yeah. move it. So um, uh, I have an image in the book of uh, the astronaut Gene Cernan after his Gemini spacewalk, and he just looks wrecked. And when he came out, he came down from the... Um, uh, from his mission, Gemini mission, they emptied, emptied more than a bucket of water out of each leg of, of his spacesuit of sweat yeah. just from the yeah. work of working against the suit to actually move in space. And so it's really like even to this day, the the, the most difficult part of the spacesuit is the glove because it's the part of our body that's least like a sphere <laughs> and, and most has to move in the most complicated ways. And uh, to this day, even in the current suits, astronauts regularly lose their fingernails just from the effort of of uh, moving their their fingertips back and forth in the glove. Fascinating. So, what what were your takeaways? Like, what do you what are you now providing in terms of insights going forward from this research of over ten years? Well, the most interesting thing for me as an architect is that I um, and somebody who works on on cities is that I thought that originally this would be a, a kind of like a, a great fairy tale or parable for architects and urban designers that the because since the Renaissance bodies and buildings and cities have been sort of compared to each other or as design has been talked about as going back and forth between these different scales. But what I actually discovered, which was totally crazy in the research, was that from about 1967 or 1968, there was a huge movement of engineers from the space race into urban administration in American cities like New York and uh, Los Angeles. And uh, there were summer schools at uh, Berkeley and MIT to retrain space engineers for, for, for urban planning work. And, of course, all the work that they did was, was 
kind of as disastrous as the work that they did trying to design for bodies. Uh, and so I thought what I did, I mean, I guess the most interesting thing I really uncovered was that what I expected to be a kind of um, parable of, of comparison turned out to be actually a, a historical story whereby you could actually show, you didn't just have to say, well, and if we if we try and design cities as if they're a piece of technology, it'll be just as ineffective as we try and design bodies as if they were a piece of technology. You could actually show through this history that had never really been written about Is, before that the the translation was very you know yeah. literal not Is just this like the brutalist movement and, and things like not that so or much what, the brutalist what, movement did, although yeah. it's contemporary with it it was more like um uh the well one of the great um uh books that has been written about this is by a journalist named joe flood um, about the fires in New York. So a bunch of Air Force engineers came into John Lindsay's um, uh, administration in New York in the 1960s, and they redesigned the whole firefighting system from scratch uh, uh, and reduced the number of fire stations. But of course, in practice, it turned out not to work, and that's why the Bronx had all these fires in the, the 1970s. Burning, yeah. you know, okay, interesting. The, the, and, and so yeah. the, this is more design at the scale of cities versus like design of buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, but you did have something, a program like Operation Breakthrough, it was called, the, that was part the NASA's former director of nuclear propulsion research named Harold Finger went to uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development and spearheaded a bunch of um, aerospace company proposals for prefabricated housing that they built all over the U.S., uh, mm-hmm. uh, building houses if, as if they were jet engines and on, on assembly lines. And, of course, they weren't very nice houses and the systems in them didn't work in the way in which they were supposed to. And, yeah. and uh, you know... That's so this yeah. is like a fundamental <laughs> lesson of technology, right? Is that it never yeah. works quite the way you suppo- it's supposed to and, and doesn't quite adapt itself to the way you actually want to live. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about where spacesuits have gone since and uh, looking forward, such as the trip to Mars. Right after this on Fashion Is Your Business, on location at Wear Conference in San Francisco. We'll be right back. So check this out. For more than 15 years and more than 160,000 customers, the number one SMS marketing software, industry leader Easy Texting, has set the standard for business texting platforms. So it's a cloud-based self-service SaaS platform, and it's a top 20 best product for marketers, and it allows businesses of all sizes to reach and engage their mobile audiences. They've sent 5 billion messages to their customers, yes, but what can really move the needle for you is this. Texting delivers 600% more engagement than email. Now, what could you do with 600% more engagement? Look, 90% of people read new messages within 30 minutes, right? And text messages 134% more likely to be read than emails. So when an online boutique wanted to send their existing customers coupons and information about upcoming sales, they wanted an easy-to-use text marketing platform, and they used easy texting. 89% of customers prefer messaging to communicate with businesses. 77% of consumers have a more positive impression of companies that text. So when a clothing store with a pop-up shop wanted to increase store traffic as well as tell past customers about new arrivals, they used easy texting. In-store traffic increased within just a few hours of their first text. They had positive communications with customers, and they saved time. So you come to fashion as your business for valuable 
business insights and strategy, right? This one is a game changer. Texting allows you to facilitate scheduling, enable staffing, promote products and services, and notify customers, and the big kahuna provide an excellent customer experience. So, Fashion is Your Business is going to hook you up. Easy Texting is offering a free trial to listeners of the Fashion is Your Business podcast. Just text FASHION to 858-585. Again, that's FASHION to 858-585. Message and data rates may apply for this recurring message program. Welcome back to Fashion Is Your Business on location at the Wear Conference in San Francisco. And we're here with Nicholas DiMangio, who's the author of Spacesuit, Fashioning Apollo. So, Nicholas, let's fast forward to recent years and all the innovation that spacesuits have had as a result of just, you know, technological advances and considering the experiences that astronauts had. Um, So two questions. One is. Any insights in terms of what we've learned from other countries and the developments that they've had in spacesuits that uh, I know we want to think more globally, but um, in this particular case, Apollo was an American program. And then uh, secondly, looking at the uh, ISS and uh, the upcoming trip or trips to Mars, uh, what can you talk about in terms of innovation and looking forward? Uh, well, the, so the in terms of the your first question, the difference uh, I, I loved looking at the difference between Russian and American spacesuits because mm-hmm. they're whole different levels of practicality. We talked about how yes. American spacesuits ended up being much more practical than they were originally imagined. Um, uh, Russian spacesuits were were even more so because they had f- even fewer resources, but had to think much even more creatively about how to make the best out of what they had. My favorite example is uh, the United States spent millions literally millions of dollars developing an airtight zipper for pressure suits so wow. that to allow you to get into and out of a of a pressure layer that would hold its strength the russians uh, uh didn't even bother trying instead um to this day even the the russian suits that you see american astronauts wearing on their trips up and down to the iss you crawl into those suits through a fabric tube that comes out of its abdomen like um <laughs> like a, a kind of crazy birth canal and then you uh uh, once you crawl all the way into that tube, you just tie a knot in it and close it with something that looks yeah, like cut a the bread clip. Cord. Yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> you, and, uh, so not for the claustrophobic. The not, the... not for the claustrophobic. Um, and then the um, uh, in terms of um, the well, the other amazing thing I discovered is that the the. Uh, the very same women who sewed uh, were taken off the Playtex bra and girdle line to work for ILC on suit assembly were up until the late 90s and early 2000s in their retirement sewing suits for the International Space Station because the same company, ILC, ended up getting the contract for uh, the internet ISS suits mm-hmm. and they were not honestly that different from the Apollo suits. They were different yeah. in some ways in terms of ease of manufacture, patterning. They had a hard torso instead of a, a soft torso but otherwise actually they figured a lot out in the 60s and then they used that knowledge um, throughout the rest of the modern American space program. Mars is an interestingly different story because the problem is different. You're not going into a interstellar vacuum like you are um, on the moon or even in, in orbit on the International Space Station. You're going mm-hmm. uh, to, a, to a real place with a real atmosphere that's almost as hostile to human life but has very different problems to be solved. Uh, there is pressure about a sixth of the Earth 
Earth's air pressure on the surf on the surface of Mars. It's like going up to the very, very, very highest top of Everest uh, uh, and even higher. But it is a kind of atmosphere. There's no um, oxygen in it to breathe, so you have to supply oxygen to a helmet. To, to uh, people often think that in uh, space, if you weren't wearing a spacesuit, you'd die or explode straight away, and that turns out not to be the case. You, the human body, is incredibly resilient. Um, on Mar- on Mars, you'd have even more time, uh, especially if you could hold your breath. Hmm. Interesting. That's not really portrayed in the sci-fi movies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the one thing I would say is that the suits that they designed for the Martian movie um, uh, with um, Matt Damon were probably um, fairly accurate in terms of the the uh, the way in which a, a suit uh, in on, on Mars could be designed very differently. One thing, uh, one crucial piece is that unlike a suit on, on Earth, a suit on Mars, unlike the Apollo suit or the ISS suit, a suit on Mars could be uh, what's called a a a um positive uh, not a full pressure suit but a partial pressure suit it could simply squeeze the body to help keep it together under low pressure um mm. uh and so uh, uh a so scientist like named David Newman layers. at MIT yeah. has been doing some amazing work on uh, partial pressure suits and modern partial pressure suits that could actually uh, uh, just sort of squeeze in all your bits like uh, lots of fingers around your body instead of creating an artificial bubble around you like uh, a suit over the uh, a suit on uh, had to have uh, that quality on the moon or on the ISS when there's no atmosphere at all. Is that similar to the compression layers they use for uh, keeping? It's it's of it's, it's like the world's most astonishing. The um, there was a, a crazy uh, proposal for uh, a, a similar suit to that during the Apollo uh, era that basically involved putting on sixty pairs of control top pantyhose over every su- every uh, surface of your body. And there's uh, an amazing film I've seen of the guy putting it on, and it takes him about two hours, and it looks like just about the least comfortable thing you could possibly imagine so what uh professor newman at mit has been working on is a suit that you could zip on uh easily and then would use shape memory alloys and other materials to actually then squeeze you so you wouldn't have to to pull on that very tight sock over your over your whole body but it would actually help uh you'd be able to switch on and off that quality to the suit i'd love to dive in a little bit uh, just pivoting a little uh talk a little bit more about the actual materials themselves that have been used in constructing the suits, both both the larger body of the yeah. suit and then some of even the the joint material. And right. uh, tell us what you've learned about uh, about that and some of the considerations as to why those materials were ultimately selected. Well, the, the most I mean, I expected when I first started researching spacesuits that all kinds of crazy new materials would have had to be invented to allow spacesuits to exist. But what I ended up discovering, especially in the case of the Apollo suit, was the reverse. The Apollo suit was 21 different layers of fabric. Each of them were taken from an existing situation on the Earth where the particular quality that the suit had, like fire resistance or thermal insulation, was paramount. And then they were layered together like so many Russian dolls, mm-hmm. uh, literally one suit inside the other, 21 layers thick. Oh, so it's like, okay, so we need fire retardant. We need yeah. this. We need this. So we're just going to layer them, and then it will give us all those things. Exactly. like a, Very I, much I like the that. human That's skin crazy. itself, these sort of layers of... Mm-hmm. of uh, and this was why the sewing problem was so incredible 
trouble because you had to literally fit these infinitesimally um, larger suits around each other without, uh, and then sew them together to a 64th of an inch tolerance only on one side of the seam without using any pins. And that's what the, the level of craft that these uh, seamstresses uh, who'd been taken from Playtex had to develop uh, uh, in order to be able to, to put these assemblies together. How did they deal with um, concerns about radiation in space and things like that? What did well, they use for that? radiation in space is uh, uh, is 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 a difficult one. So it's it's a problem that we'll increasingly face on trips outside the Van Allen belts, uh, which are the large protective, um, which the large magnetic uh, uh, fields around the Earth, which protect us against most of the sun's um, uh, uh, really damaging radiation. Um, we protected against it in the Apollo era by keeping trips short. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, um, and um, we protected against the heat of the sun by putting the space capsule in, in what was uh, termed a slow rotisserie roll. So as it moved between the Earth and the sun, it slowly rotated um, uh, so around to be evenly, to evenly heated yeah. on each side. Yeah. Um, but the, the question of radiation is, um, uh, is, will be a huge issue as we send people on uh, longer missions to, uh, uh, to Mars because the, when you go much outside the orbit of the Earth, you uh, are exposed to all kinds of damaging radiations which does cellular damage, and you can't really uh, um, uh, uh, shield against gamma rays without enormous um, uh, uh, shielding made of lead and other materials. So we really, that's one of the many things that we haven't figured out. So with, um, with the Apollo missions, my, my grandfather was part of the Strategic Air Command for the Air Force, mm-hmm. and he was an electrician that worked on Apollo. Yeah. And um, one of the interesting things was that... Um, in his unit, almost everyone in his unit died from a degenerative brain disorder as a result of exposure to radiation yeah. um, during the building process. And so was there much of an understanding at that time of the dangers of radiation or were they just like rolling the dice and hoping there wasn't an I think force? that they were – I mean the, the – one of the things that people – it's very hard to imagine today that was true of the space race is that the the we, – we have been kind of – introduced a narrative after the fact of the space of the American space program being a slow and steady acceleration for scientific means out into the corner of the universe. But really the, the space race of the 1960s was war by other means. It was war through fashion. It was war Mm -hmm. through fashion and television. It was the, the, the production, the massive uh, enterprise of producing a single television image of an American on the surface of the moon as an essential weapon in the cold war. And so um, while lots, of uh, of course the astronaut safety was protected as much as possible they were also regarded themselves certainly as soldiers in that war mm-hmm. uh, and you saw that um, uh, in some of the 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 sacrifices that were demanded both the deaths in the Apollo 1 fire the the deaths we almost had in Apollo 13 there was no question in anyone's mind that there was a massive um, uh, questions of national security and safety on the line to which this remarkable um, uh, historic effort of putting a, a person on the surface of the moon was the peaceful means to to fight that battle versus uh, ground wars in Asia uh, or yeah. other um, uh, or, or nuclear mm-hmm. conflict but it was it was definitely Deadly serious business, and there was a huge urgency to it. Uh, you know, most of the space race, from soup to nuts, all of Apollo was designed, built, and executed in seven years. 
1966, it took a nickel out of every tax dollar as an as an effort. This was this was really really essential. And then once it was done, the American uh, 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 national space enterprise has never really recovered because it was never urgently needed in the same way again because mm-hmm. of that victory. Okay. Now you had a. Um now you uh, had presented at Ware Conference. I'm curious to hear the um, the information that you were, uh, the insights that you were lending to the audience, yeah. and how it related to the overall program here. Well, I'd say it goes back to our first conversation about how the the you know fashion we were used to thinking of fashion as a cultural artifact, and we don't think often enough how functional fashion has to be, and we're used to thinking of technology as a functional artifact, but not thinking about how much is guided by fashion and and mm-hmm. and cultural preconceptions, and so I guess the 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 most basic point I would have tried to make to to this audience is that uh, both realms have a lot to learn from each other in terms of the 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 way in which if we understand technology as a cultural artifact, we can understand how many ideas and preconceptions are tied up in the phone that you hold in your hand or the the, the, the machine that you're using to, to um, software you're using to model your designs, all have a bunch of um, uh, ideas tied up in them. And you need to think about what those ideas are and how they're changing the way you work. And so then um, uh, on the other side, we're, we don't really think about the, the kind of urgent and, and beautiful functionality of fashion and the way in which the, the modes of invention in fashion, which often involve remaking and adaptation and MacGyvering your way into new situations, the way in which those modes of operating are actually really useful way beyond uh, what we think of as fashion into ways of making buildings and cities and technologies and landscapes. So I, I think um, um, that, that's why the book is called Fashioning Apollo, um, uh, because it's really taking every meaning of that word, fashion, and celebrating it. Now, what would you, um, speaking to technologists and then secondly, speaking to designers separately, how would you guide them in their thought process on working with one another? I would say it's... it's um, they are two cultures meeting around the landscape of clothing uh, and that helping to understand when you meet someone from another culture, you really need to take time to understand where they're coming from and what the, the um, most of most technologists and most technology, just as one example, thinks in terms of optimization, right, of making something perfect for a, a, a specific numerically described situation most fashion is not about optimization uh i don't go around wearing carbon blades in my shoes i go around wearing shoes that may not even be so functional but they look interesting or may have a lot of function to them uh you know that and so the the values and systems of each um uh of each culture are very different um but also very similar because when push comes to shove, most engineers know that you don't solve a problem through a perfectly described solution. You solve a problem through a perfectly described solution and a bash with a hammer (laughs) at the right instance, (laughs) uh, which is very uh, very similar to designing for the body in real situations. So I I think that the, um, yeah, but it really is a two cultures problem. One of the most interesting things now, our world is a little bit more complicated, but one of the most interesting things reading the book is that, of course, the all the engineers um, coming from the military-industrial side in the Apollo 
other program were men and all the seamstresses were women. And so it was a, there you had a very gendered divide. Um, uh, and still we think of engineering and technology as more of a masculine realm and, and fashion being more of a, of a feminine realm. And those are, um, in a way, that's a kind of placeholder for the fact that these are two very different modes of understanding the world. And if, we, uh, if they really are to come together successfully, they each need to learn from the other. But I argue technology probably at the end of the day has more to learn from fashion than, than the other way around um, because fashion has been around for a lot longer. We've been wearing mm -hmm. clothes for longer than we've right. been designing wheels. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, and so um, uh, I think there's a rich, very pragmatic, very useful mode of knowledge in fashion, which is a mode of thinking that we're, we don't really think about as being useful. We think about as being fabulous. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. But um, but it's a deeply deeply practical way of looking at the world, even you know, even at the scale of couture. Have there been innovations that you've come across, whether it's conferences like this or in your research of clothing, that you are marvelled by, and you can see the utility in it in every yeah. day, and you think that it's going to be a long sustained um, iteration of what clothing is right. and can be. I think, um, I mean, there's the, the, the most remarkable collision of, fa of fashion and technology that I've experienced has been, you know, as a, uh, as a not very fast runner, as a, as a hiker, an outdoors person, I'm, a, I'm a, astonished by the way in which the, our experience of, of high performance fashion has gone in the last 20 years from something where you're pretty much always guaranteed to be wet or cold or some combination uh, or, or too warm to uh, uh, fabrics that have a lot of the qualities of our body in being porous and responsive and adaptive to different circumstances. I think that's a really remarkable increase in, in, uh, uh, in how technology has changed how we operate in the world through clothing. Uh, I think in terms of embedded technology and sensors and, and devices, I think we're, it, we're, we, we haven't yet spotted the tip of the iceberg. But when you think about um, uh, from the medical side that our uh, um, clothing is this piece of technology that touches our largest organ, which is our skin, and we can understand so much about the body through its surface, uh, you know, my my uh, um, I share a studio uh, with a woman whose son is uh, type one diabetic and who is uh, always um, uh, has hacked together as a technologist a system that lets her phone always be able to browse her her son's um, uh, blood sugar level yep. and but then she still has to call the school and ask them to press the button on his insulin pump you know even when the phone sets off an alarm but we're moving towards things like artificial pancreases well, well they have um, those surface placeholders they right. look like tattoos and they could just exactly. kind of yeah. Yeah, yeah and so the notion of um, I think it's a very different notion than the original notion of the cyborg which is all about the inferiority of human systems and our need to upgrade them and replace them with better systems. I take personal offense to that now that I'm a cyborg, by the way. But my, my, <laughs> the second part of my point is that, in fact, or you're suddenly modern, insulted. modern uh, uh, technologies, I think, are taking their cue from the body. So layers, new layers of extra layers of skin with new kinds of functions that are adding to the existing functions of our body. It's about augmenting ourselves through a kind of biological vision of technology versus upgrading ourselves through a mechanical vision of the body. Fantastic. Thank you very much. All right. Well, uh, we're going to take a break.
Okay. I don't know why, because that's pretty fascinating, but we're still going to do it. And when we come back, it's going to be our third and final segment, which means off-the-grid questions. We're going to get personal in just a moment right here at the Wear Conference in San Francisco, and fashion is your business. We'll be right back. Now here comes a twist. I'm going to share serious tips, challenges, and solutions. I'm 36 years old. I founded 21 companies. I'm an Inc. 500 awardee. It's one word. Adrapafignore. Guaranteed to get to the f***ing point. It happened to me not once, not twice, three times. This is going to happen. Write it down. With Eli Ostriker. Right now, let me focus on my logo. Focus on the website. You f***ing out of your mind. Are you crazy? This is Naked Entrepreneur. Listen, it's a podcast. Rated R. You can follow Fashion Is Your Business on social media at Fashion Biz Show. That's Fashion B-I-Z Show. Episodes available at fashionisyourbusiness.com and listen and subscribe wherever the best podcasts are found. Welcome back to our final segment of Fashion Is Your Business. We're here with Nicholas DeMancho, who is the author of Spacesuit, Fashioning Apollo. And it's our third segment, which means... It's time for Questions Off the Grid with Fashion Is Your Business. That's right. Off the Grid questions where we ask questions, frankly, a little off the grid, a little more personal in nature. We have no idea what we're going to ask, no idea what our co-hosts are going to ask, much less the order we're going to ask those questions. We solve that, of course, with our gigantic Wheel of Grid Destiny. I'm going to give it a quick spin. And the first question comes to Pavin. And given that he's a cyborg, it should come very quickly to him and his computerized name. <laughs> what is, uh, given my recent transformation, I'm, uh, I'm inspired to answer, ask you this question. Um, what is the f- first time you could remember either modifying a, an existing either material or item uh, in your possession to help you do something that you couldn't do before? That's a really good question. Uh, I th- and you could think to early age, like even grabbing a stick to you know to, right. to toss something off the shelf and yeah, 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 having yeah, that yeah. feeling of wow, the the whole right. world is opened up now that I can yeah, leverage yeah, yeah. other things. Yeah, I think that my I had a twin brother. I have a twin brother, and we um, uh, between uh, between the two of us, we used I think the the things that. The, what children teach us about making and design is their ability to see something as something else, to see the possibilities inherent in an object. So my earliest memory of fashion and transformation would probably be in the sheets and cushions and um, couch surfaces that we, like a million other kids, made into forts and spaceships and uh, uh, kind of objects of the imagination um, uh, only through the through the most um, uh, kind of dumb transformations of, you know, draping and, and arranging and uh, that, that notion of kind of continuous reinvention and play is I've learned much later in my life at the core of what it is to be a designer. All right, wow. spinning. Beautiful answer, by the way. Thank you. Uh, spinning the wheel. And the next question comes to me. And my question is, spacesuits, space travel, Apollo, I am so inspired to ask you whether or not you happen to be a science fiction fan or not. What is a moment 
in any science fiction film or television show that particularly connected with you or 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 riveted you or inspired you that might might be so obvious for you to name um i think the well, my I can I can plug my um, uh, the book I'm working on now is a uh, combined history of two cultural phenomena, cultural and technological phenomena that shape much of our present day reality. And the first is Apple computing, and the second is Star Wars. And the uh, they're both products of the Bay Area here. Uh, and the I would say that the first. Star Wars film, which I, my parents took me to when I was way too young. I was four years old and uh, contained within it a vision of, of technology that was realistic, even if it was fantastic, unlike all the previous science fiction I'd encountered, which was, wasn't even a lot at that age. Um, I already understood that technology most of the time didn't work the way it was supposed to and uh, uh, never looked... Uh, again, the way it did when you first took it out of the box. And so uh, set pieces like the Millennium Falcon represented a kind of, oh, that's, of course, a, tra a spaceship that can do the Kessel Run in less than five parsecs, but it looks like my experience of technology and is <laughs> thus all the more magical for being so instead yeah. of being perfect and, and uh, uh, you know, spherical uh, and, and endlessly finished like the Death Star, which I, you know, don't hesitate to point out unexpectedly blows up at the end like a lot of technology that seems perfect does. I'd like to point out, just for the sake of your own research, that I believe it was uh, 12 part, uh, Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. Pardon? I believe it was the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. Okay. I, yes, well, absolutely. I just don't want you to get your research no, wrong. No, no, no. I, I, I bow to your superior knowledge, <laughs> although I will point out that a parsec is a unit of distance, not time. So I know. it doesn't actually it's make a lot of sense. It's a horrible line, actually, right? <laughs> so... Um, uh, anyway, um, uh, thank you. Uh, and a final spin of the wheel. And, of course, it comes to Rob. So we've been throwing around the word space and its meaning of you know, external from Earth. And you're an architect. So I'm going to go back to a different definition of the word and just ask you, um, look back at childhood and then look back, or not look back, but and think about today. What is a physical space in which you find quiet and peace um, from childhood and then today as well? That's a good question. I think um, a physical space. The I think as someone who grow, grew up in a somewhat cacophonous household i was used to finding brief moments of quiet wherever i could <laughs> and so adapting any space to be quiet i think as a as a writer too you uh so you 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 i i started out the process of writing this book uh and the, and the books i've written since imagining that there could or should be a perfect space for writing but quickly I discovered what I think any real writer understands is that there's no ideal peaceful place for, for creating that you create the, the peaceful place inside your, your own consciousness, which is, you know, for an architect, um, a pretty good way to say my services are unnecessary. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, I, would, I would say that would be my answer, that the, that the, yeah. the, the only really peaceful space I've, I've discovered is the one that you can create inside of yourself no matter what's going on. Excellent. All right. Nice. Yeah. 
Um, I, I'm just, I don't know why I, in my mind, I compare that to the idea of the isolation within a spacesuit. Yeah. In a way you, you are within yourself. I right. don't know. I'm getting deep there. Well, I, I mean, know. I think I, I, I finished the book and maybe we can finish the, uh, the, the, the segment by, um, recounting one of my most amazing discoveries, uh, of the, of the whole process of researching the book was when I spent a, a, an amazing year at the National Air and Space Museum in D.C. working uh, most days during the week out with the suits in a, in a warehouse in Suitland, Maryland, um, uh, coincidentally. Yeah, um, how cliche. Uh, and then uh, the but the 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 thing I discovered was that I I got to meet all these Apollo astronauts not because they had necessarily had any interest in in talking to me but because they would all come and visit their suits because unlike anything else really? they regarded the the you I asked them well do you go visit the lunar module or the command module and and I remember um, Tom Stafford who was the commander of Apollo ten telling me I was no I was just a truck but this suit was a part of me. Uh, and so uh, I thought it was such an incredible um, uh, uh, poetic uh, way of, of articulating the difference between fashion and technology on the one hand, and then also what makes that particular object so special as a as a as a piece of history and and of technology both. Well, I believe um, you are right. That is a perfect note to end the interview on. Thank great. you. Uh, how can people connect with you and? Perhaps most importantly, how can people connect with your book? The book has a website. It's fashioningapollo.com, all one word. And you can find links. Uh, you can find. You can download the first chapter to the book there and read it um, uh, uh, yourself. And then if you like what you read, you can uh, find links there to, to buy the book from MIT Press, its publisher, Amazon, IndieBound, and a couple of other places as well. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Nicholas. Uh, what a really unusual and tremendous conversation and congratulations on your success and for completing a decade of work uh, that I'm sure you can go the rest of the years uh, being pretty proud of and being a part of history. Thank you really. so much. It's a pleasure being with you. All right. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Fashion is Your Business on location at Wear Conference in San Francisco, California for Rob Sanchez. Good night, y'all. And Pub and Ball. Shake it easy, guys. I'm Mark Rako. We really appreciate you joining us. Thanks. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. This has been Fashion Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show, or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Fashion Biz Show. That's Fashion B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, fashionisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. This is your announcer, Peter Coleman. Thanks for listening.